production. Hello, A Life of Greatness listeners. I wanted to let you know about my private Facebook group called Live Your Life Greatly. It's a space for our community of like-minded people to give advice and tips on how to live a life of love and meaning. Search Live Your Life Greatly in Facebook groups. You can also join me on Instagram at Sarah Grimberg for daily inspiration, videos and behind-the-scenes footage. Search Sarah Grimberg on Instagram. Dr. Paul Conti is adept at helping people untangle complex problems and he also happens to be a psychiatrist. Dr. Conti incorporates a holistic view of each client or patient into his work, knowing the far-reaching impacts trauma can have upon the systems and communities in which an individual resides, works and serves. Dr. Conti says every single one of us is affected by trauma, though some carry a heavier burden than others. Understanding its insidious effects and far-reaching complications is vital to charting the path to healing for all. I've interviewed hundreds of people on this podcast and Dr. Paul Conti is someone I will never forget. He is kind, full of wisdom and most importantly sincere, attributes he not only teaches but embodies. In this conversation, we discuss healing from trauma, the importance of the stories we tell ourselves and the influence of modern society on mental health. Things would not have been okay if I were, in a sense, choosing to live inauthentically because of the false lessons of trauma, right, that tell me nothing's ever going to be okay and no one's ever going to help me and I better just go hide with all that guilt and shame and fear. We have to run countercurrent to that and live authentically, which means living in the truths of our lives, good, bad, and otherwise. That's how we heal, and that's how we're healthy, and that's how we're interconnected. I'm Sarah Grimberg, and this is A Life of Greatness. Working as a podcast and radio producer, I have been fortunate enough to cross paths with many intriguing people who have had a profound impact on me. In this series, I share stories and experiences from the people who have brought inspiration to my life and hopefully yours too. Dr. Paul Conti is the author of Trauma, The Invisible Epidemic, a book that brings his valuable insights about how we can collectively heal. Dr. Conti is an important voice in curing the trauma epidemic. As Lady Gaga describes him, he made life worth living, but most importantly, he empowered me to find and reclaim myself again. In its essence, this conversation is about the importance of empathy, meeting resistance with patience, and how we all have the ability to heal. My hope is that Dr. Paul Conti's words ignite the inner change you seek most and guides you to reimagine what it means to be truly free from the shackles of our past and in the process, what it means to be human. Paul Conti, you are so loved by so many people. You are a psychiatrist and you deal with a lot of trauma. How did you get into this line of work? I had had an entirely different career. So I had a business career before medicine. And I think after the, the tragic loss of my brother, which I sort of write about in the book, um, I, I wanted something different. You know, I, I wanted a path that was was much more deeply and intensely involved with people's struggles. 
you know, and part of that was probably my own journey and desire to learn more and understand more about life and, and desire to gain some sort of mastery around, around health and distress, you know, in order to cope with my own sense of vulnerability after my brother's suicide. And, and, and also I felt empowered to make change. I didn't feel afraid to make change as I had before. So, so there was a lot of negative that came from that tragedy, but it also empowered me to say, Hey, if I feel like I want to go this route, let me try and do that. And I ended up going back to college for a year and taking the pre-medical classes and navigating my way to medical school and then becoming so interested in psychiatry with the idea that, oh, you could like be a doctor, right? And think about medical things and brain biology and labs and MRIs. And, and you could also use knowledge and life experience and, you know, reading and travel, like all the things that let us kind of hopefully understand ourselves and life better, right? In, in order to be helpful to people. So, so it was that combination that so then drew me to psychiatry. And then once I was in the field, I just saw that the, the underlying factor driving so much of what I was trying to address and help in people really was trauma. So that's what led me initially to medicine, then to psychiatry, and then to a focus upon trauma within the field of psychiatry. Obviously, you mentioned that your brother committed suicide, which is a horrific thing for anyone who knows someone that has committed suicide or has a loved one. I had a friend last year here at work commit suicide. And it's it's a horrible, horrible thing. How have you dealt with that, knowing everything that you do now? Well, initially, you know, I had no knowledge of yeah. medicine. Right. I had no knowledge. And, and, you know, my, my response to the kid's choice to end his life by suicide was, was shock, guilt, shame, right. A sense of being cursed, a sense that like, oh, things in life can like never be okay. You know, it, it was, was th- th- what I now observe is just so common. Like this is, this is the response of, of so many people, the vast majority, if not in some ways, all people to tragedy is, you know, we we're confused by it. We're frightened by it. We have a reflexive sense of guilt and shame about it. I, I was taking very poor care of myself and, you know, all of a sudden any grounding or sort of foundation I had that like, Oh, I can work hard and achieve and, and like make a good life for myself was all just, you know, all just really thrown away. And, and I felt frightened, confused, guilty, and ashamed. And, you know, I was, was very fortunate that I had good people and good supports around me. And I went and I got some mental health help, which I'd never done before. And, you know, I had been sort of raised in a way where, where, you know, people didn't go get therapy and it was thought of mental health cares for people who were sick. Yeah. And you know, there was so much stigma around it. So I was very fortunate to get myself to some care and to a therapist who helped me ground to, you know, what was going on inside of me and what to make of it and, and how to understand it. And, um, and that led me to slowly, one step at a time, be able to get my life on track. I mean, now from the perspective, so many years later and with the education and training and experience that I have, I can see, oh, right, like all that was going on in me, all that guilt and shame and real terror 
of it and, and just confusion and, and not being able to grieve because you can't grieve if you're feeling ashamed and you're mm. feeling guilty and you're feeling responsible that, that really I had in a sense, a normal reaction, right. In the context of societies that don't really give us much education and help about how to deal with it. So I now see that it kind of all made sense, but at the time, Gosh, I didn't see that at the time. You know, I was just really lost in all of it, which is, which, you know, intensifies my focus on trauma that all this has gone on in me and gone on in me with subsequent tragedies as, as well, right? Without my ability to really understand it. And it helps me, I think, to feel so much more understanding and compassion when people are going through it, because that's what happens to us if we don't have the right help mm. when there's trauma in our lives. I feel that. Obviously, knowing someone that committed suicide and seeing everyone's reaction after, there's this big feeling of hopelessness. I wish I could have yes. done more. I knew that they were unwell. Not all, you don't always know that, but in in my case, right. we did. I should have gone out for the coffee with him. Why did I just say it and not follow up? I mean, how does one move past that if they're dealing with something like that? Well, I think the first step is to normalise that reaction, right? Because when there's a loss to someone who ends their life by suicide, right? And we have, as a reflex, feel guilty and ashamed and responsible, right? We don't have the mechanisms to say, wait, maybe it makes sense that I feel this way in a sense of it being a natural human response. So I want to validate that I'm having the natural response, but, but I don't want to embrace it. Oh, this is true. Mm. Right. And, and we don't generally separate that where we validate the response, but we look at the response and say, Hey, that doesn't mean that it's true. Right. It's a natural reflex in conscientious human beings to feel responsible and guilty and ashamed. Right. But that doesn't mean that any of that is right or makes sense. So the first step is understanding what's going on in us. Right. What does it mean? Then we can start to talk about it and to talk about the narrative of it. Right. Of like what we can and can't you know, impact in the world around us. Right. Our sense of wishing things to be better. Right. Than they often are. Right. Including after losses where we validate how we're feeling and the naturalness of it, that big traumas and, and, and all sorts of traumas. Right. Whether they're big, acute traumas like what we're talking about or they're chronic traumas over time of someone being sort of seen as less than over time mm. for reasons which could be gender, sexuality, um, you know, socioeconomic status, race, religion, but there's so many things that make people feel chronically less than that also create a trauma response in us where our coping skills are overwhelmed and then our brains are changed and are different moving forward. Right. Which is why this is all based in the science of it all that tells us, right, this is what happens. And we can look and we can understand how the brain is changed after trauma. Right. And yes, it can be a big acute event or it can be chronic trauma or it can be vicarious trauma, trauma we experience through other people's suffering as we see front and center mm. going on in the Ukraine. And as we've seen going on in Syria and going on in Afghanistan and going on in how many places, including often in our own nations. Right. But we see this in front of us and we can be affected by it in a way that starts changing our biology and how we view and frame the world without us being without us automatically understanding that. 
So, so we need like mechanisms that, that help us learn and understand and educate us about what's going on inside of us so that we can get to a place where we can grieve, right? But you can't grieve if you feel responsible, yeah. right? So we have to sort this out inside of us. What are the natural neuro brain biology, neurobiological and psychological processes, right? If we don't understand that, we get driven by the processes, and often people who thought, you know, who were actually living a good life can be driven to a place where they feel hopeless, they feel despairing, right? They're taking risks with their own life or now they're using substances as a way that puts their life at risk. And the people don't even see that, that it's changed in them, mm. right? Because unless we help people stop and reflect about what's going on inside, the changes drive us without us having insight that we've changed. There's something that you said that. I think is really important to talk about as well as when you're feeling a certain way, having someone to talk to who is a doctor of some sort, it normalizes your feelings. Because I feel that a lot of the time people hold their feelings inside and think they're the only one that feels it. And then they, like you said, may feel ashamed, embarrassed or out of control with their feelings. And as soon as you express those feelings to someone of authority in the medical field and they normalise that, it's like this sense of relief. How important Absolutely. has that been to you in your in your practice? Immensely important. I mean, th- this is the first step towards healing, yeah. right? If you, you think about it, the, the trauma that overwhelms our coping skills, right, and leaves us different, right, it, it is begging for us to share that, right? To help understand what's going on inside of us, to realize, oh, this isn't just me, right? Like this is a human thing that's going on inside of me. Yet trauma, I mean, it's it's actually, you couldn't really design something so more evil, right? That what it does is is it, it tells us to do the exact opposite right? That, oh, we should be ashamed of this. We should hide this, right? How will others respond? And then we keep inside of us the very thing that we need to share because we don't get to have the benefit of other people, you know, validating for us that how we feel, mm-hmm. right? But that's, it's not our fault, right? And that we're, and then we'll, we're entitled to sadness, right? And we're entitled to shock and confusion, right? That comes with trauma, but we don't get any of that out if the guilt and shame tells us to hide it all. Right. And I can remember sitting in front of the therapist and talking about, oh, my brother, you know, my brother who ended his life and, you know, and just her, I mean, so many years ago, but just her like, okay, talking about like, oh, she didn't respond. Like, oh my goodness. Like she didn't respond in a way that was stigmatizing or shaming. And like, what a difference that made. Such a difference. I remember I was 18 and I, for the first time in my life, I experienced anxiety, which, you know, looking back for it to have just been when I was 18 is pretty good innings. Sure. Anyway, Uh it was over something that I was just nervous about. Nothing that was a really big deal. I was just nervous about something that was was coming up on the horizon. But I had no idea what anxiety was. I had, I, I just, I had never experienced it. So I didn't know. And I remember being in bed and I at the time I didn't even tell my boyfriend and ha- feeling like I was having out of body experiences and I was going crazy and I literally mm-hmm. didn't tell a soul and in my head I'm thinking I'm going to end up in an asylum or something sure. I do not know what's happening to me and then one day my dad's actually a doctor and I said to him dad I don't know what's going on and I started to cry and I told him how I was feeling he said Sarah that's anxiety I get that too 
Paul, within right. half an hour, days of anxiety had just gone. It had washed yes. off me all because he said, it's completely normal, I get it too. I had worked myself up into such a state because I believed right. that I was the only one that had ever felt this feeling and something yes. had, had gone wrong with my brain and that right. that was the end. So yeah. it just, it makes such a difference to talk to someone who knows. Right. right. It's, it's so isolating yeah. right? that even then with people around you to talk to, right? A father who's a physician, yeah. right? People to talk to, when you start having symptoms of anxiety, what you do, you close yourself in. Right. Yes. And then we be, we get it. We become afraid that either this means I'm going to die. I'm going crazy. What's wrong with me? And then we start hiding it. And what we need is for it to see the light of day and for it to be normalized. Like yeah. what was happening in you happens in humans. Yes. Millions upon millions upon millions of humans. Right. But when we sit with that alone, it terrifies us. Right. And, and that's why the, the, the antidote to all of this is it's understanding, it's openness, right? Yeah. It's communication. It's the opposite of what we tend to do by reflex. Again, mm. whether it's acute trauma or it's chronic trauma of being sort of denigrated or belittled or seen as less than over time, or it's trauma we experience because we can be empathic and we can experience other people's trauma. Yes. The reflex is the same inside of us. The brain starts changing to a place that becomes much more vigilant, right? It becomes much more vigilant, much more suspicious, much more, hey, the world's now a hostile place and I've got to look out for myself. I'm not going to communicate, right, about it. Last thing I'm going to do is go talk about what's going on inside of me when what's going on inside of me is making me feel afraid and out of control, yeah. right? And you can see how that isolation leads to tremendous suffering and it leads to death. Mm. You know, it leads to subsequent deaths by, so often it can lead to death by suicide. It can lead to death by accidents. It can lead to death by drug and alcohol use and overdose, right? There's so many ways in which that isolation is tremendously toxic mm. and it's bad for our bodies, right? It promotes autoimmune problems. It promotes heart attacks. It promotes strokes. Like, you know, it's so, so bad for us, yet we still have these societal standards that, that mean we don't get educated or supported in ways that would tell us, hey, if I'm having trauma, like I've got to communicate about it. I've got to do the exact opposite of what that guilt and shame yes. reflex tells me to do. Paul, you obviously have your fabulous book, Trauma, the Invisible Epidemic. Can you define what trauma is to us? Because I feel a lot of people these, these days, they feel that trauma is always a big event, like a car accident, sexually abused, that kind of stuff. But it isn't always that. Yeah, yeah. Trauma is anything distressing that yeah. overwhelms our coping mechanisms and leaves us different as we move forward, right? So if you think about that definition, right, it's something distressing that overwhelms our coping mechanisms and leaves us different, meaning our brain function biologically and psychologically is different moving forward, right? So this isn't a soft concept that says, oh, like everybody should be chosen for the team or right? it's not saying, hey, anything that doesn't go perfectly, it makes trauma, right? But, but it then guides us to, well, okay, what does it actually mean? Something distressing that overwhelms our coping mechanisms. And it's easiest to see in the example of a, an acute event that terrifies or shocks us, right? So if you think about a sexual assault, right? The loss of, 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 
um, of others in combat, right? Mm-hmm. You know, um, a, a car accident, right? Like, okay, we can kind of understand it. Like, whoa, it hits us like a ton of bricks. And then like all sorts of things go on in our brain. And now our brains function different afterwards, right? But that's acute trauma. Again, chronic trauma can lead to the same responses in us. So someone who's treated as less than, for example, sexual identity, gender identity, socioeconomic status, and over time continues to be treated treated as less than, yeah. right? Less than all the time. And, and it happens over and over again as a person goes through life, right? That, that can add up. The cumulative weight of that can overwhelm coping mechanisms just the same, right? The same thing with vicarious trauma, where a person who's been glued to the computer, glued to the news, you know, just watching all like the awfulness, right? That, that comes in the modern world. We can look at, we can look at terrifying things going on in the world 24 seven, right? And then people feel the vicarious trauma. They feel the trauma of what must that person have felt that we see on the news with their hands tied behind their back executed in the Ukraine, right? What what must their children have felt like as we read these stories? Mm -hmm. And then we we can begin to feel that as if we are there and our our heart rates increase and, you know, we start sweating, we get all the responses and we can vicariously then overwhelm our brains too. But the, the, the key rests on the scientific fact of, hey, the coping skills are overwhelmed. Now things are different going forward. The vigilance mechanisms in our brain are stronger, right? Avoidance mechanisms are stronger. Fear mechanisms are stronger. Affiliative mechanisms of, hey, I can navigate my way in the world and I can keep myself safe are weaker right? And then things are different going forward. And, and again, the key point is, and we don't know most of the time we don't know. And I give this example of a young woman who would cite as a a great event in her life when she won an award, when she was younger, you know, and would see like, that was awesome. I worked hard. I won this award. Like, look, it shows I can, like, I've got talent in me and people can recognize it. Right. So then after, you know, a, a really awful trauma, right. And all these changes in her brain, she became much more frightened of the world and she became frightened. She was more frightened. She became frightened of the world and, and she was unable to have faith or confidence in herself that she could navigate the world. Right. And then she talked about that award almost as, as an insult and right. That she was given something that she didn't deserve. That was just a mockery of her saying here, this can be the highlight of your life because you can't make your way in the world. Like she never felt that way. Right. But after trauma, she felt that way and she didn't know that she ever felt any differently. Mm, Right. And that's the most terrifying aspect of trauma is we forget the maps we had, so to speak. We forget what we knew about ourselves. And then we think, no, it's always been that way. I've always been somebody that can't have a good relationship, can't can't keep yourself safe, can't make her way in the world. That's me. Right. And I see like that's not how she ever thought about herself. And I see that over and over and over that trauma changes us. And we don't have very often a, a way of seeing, oh, I used to be different. And again, it's not always that way, but there's almost always some element of that. And that's why we need to connect with people around us and helping resources so that we can take control again of our life narrative and of like, wait, what do I know to be true about yes. myself? Where am I leading myself in life so that the trauma doesn't guide us to awful places? 
It's so interesting you say that because one of the things that I talk a lot about on this podcast is that how important are the stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves, what we believe to be true. And it's interesting because depending on what's going on in your life, that can obviously change and we can get into ruts of feeling hopeless or whatever the feeling, the negative feelings are. But then it's interesting when you speak to someone and they have a completely different opinion about you that is so positive and so wonderful. And I think to what you're saying, again, it's so important to have that reflection because a lot of the time the way that we perceive ourselves is not the truth of how it is, and especially if we perceive ourselves in a really negative light. Right. In a light that may, not for everyone, but for a lot of people, may be changed. The idea I think of as a lens, right? Yes. That now there's not a clear lens anymore. The lens is distorted, right? Like the story I told you about the woman who won the award, right? That she had a clear lens until the trauma. Then after it, I think that her lens was like a funhouse mirror. Yes. that distorted her. So when she looked through the lens at her own, you know, say her own reflection, she saw something grotesque and distorted because she was not able to see herself anymore, which is why, sure, often professional help can be very, very helpful, right? But it can start with just taking stock of what's going on inside, mm-hmm. right? What, what, what am I saying to myself? What's my, what's my dialogue inside, you know, when I'm walking from one place to another or just sitting quiet, like what's going on inside, right? How do I feel about myself? Is this how I always felt about myself? Can I check in with other people and talk with them, right? It starts with not being isolated and sometimes not being isolated might involve just writing down what's going on inside my head, right? Writing down how I feel about myself now. And did that change at a certain point in time? Did something happen and I felt differently? Like, is this how I've always felt about myself? And then we can ask trusted other people, right? Do you see any difference in me if we've known each other for a long time? We could just be a friend or it can be a family member or a romantic partner, right? Like check in with the other, with people around us so that we start to have a dialogue about it and we're not isolated in our own minds Mm. with often a story of self that has been impacted by trauma, but that then in a sense becomes the new truth unless we don't let it become the new truth yes. and how tragic to have new truths that are untrue, right? New truths that come through the lens of the sort of evil messaging of trauma, right? As opposed to what is really true about, about a person, seeing the good qualities and the striving and, you know, all the things that sort of make us us that we can lose sight of if we're oppressed by all of that guilt and shame and fear that can come after trauma. And as you're pointing out, not just big trauma, right? But the accumulation of denigration and being treated as less than, and some of the things that we see around us in the world that make us feel just baseline frightened and vulnerable. Paul, I want to read the very abridged version of the forward to your book, Trauma, the Invisible Epidemic, because I think it really highlights the amazing work you do in the conversation that we're having. So as I mentioned, it's the abridged version. If anyone wants to go and check out the full version, they can go purchase your wonderful book. But it's actually written by Lady Gaga, who was a patient of yours, her her real name being Stephanie. I was gently thrown into an emergency care room at some private hospital in New York during a world tour. I remember a vision of a doctor and a nurse. They asked me calmly to count back from 100 as I continued to scream. 
I recall saying, why is no one panicking? And they encouraged me to keep counting back from 100 until I got to about 69. I think that's when I stopped counting and declared, hi, I'm Stephanie. I also confessed that I couldn't feel my body and that I was completely numb. I looked at the nurse who had been waiting with me, not realising that another doctor had left and a new one had arrived. Why didn't you bring me a real doctor, I asked the nurse. Paul replied by saying, I'm an Italian from New Jersey, and that was when I decided I was willing to talk to him. My dad is an Italian from New Jersey, so I figured at least I knew what I was dealing with. At that moment, I began a journey that I've continued ever since, a journey with a man I had never met before, but who would somehow make a part of his life's work to understand and help me. It wasn't until two years of working together that he revealed to me that he took six months to assess me and figure out if I was movable when I was clearly in a state of traumatic paralysis. I will not tell you everything that has happened between the two of us, but I will tell you this. Paul only wore his white coat when he needed to, to remind me he is a doctor most of the time by mutual consent. Paul has related to me as a fellow human being and a safe man. We have learned about each other as we began a process of healing for me that I thought was impossible. I can now say with certainty that this man saved my life. He made my life worth living, but most importantly, he empowered me to find and reclaim myself again. Paul, (laughs) it makes me want to cry reading that. That is so so beautiful. That's why I really wanted to read it. How important is it being with a patient and listening? I, I know within my job, listening is the most important gift I can give someone. And I want to know how important it is for you. It, it, it's the most important thing, right? If you think about the narrative there, and, and Stephanie has been brave and open about the trauma in her life, Right, which is so helpful because it helps people who who may look look up to her, right, and yes. and see her as you know what a, a paragon of goodness and perseverance and achievement, and to see like oh, like I, I don't have to be ashamed of my trauma. Like, look, she has trauma too. Like, it's not something that that just happens to people because we can all feel so isolated. Oh, it's just happened to me, right? That So her openness about like, look, there's trauma in her life and she was experiencing trauma very acutely at, at the time. And it's not uncommon that a person thinks like there's something medical going on, right? So that why didn't you bring me a real doctor? Is like, why is there a psychiatrist here? <laughs> Right? Yeah. Does it make any sense? Right? Like, because what, what's going on is medical. So we've got to give me a medicine. Right? That's not uncommon. Right? So how how to approach that? Right? Is I think how to get someone to engage to to to, to be, trust you and begin talking is to try and meet them where they're at, right? If I didn't know that she's an Italian from New York, I wouldn't have told her I was an Italian from New Jersey, right? Yes. But, but I'm thinking like, look, how do I, I, I want to be a real human with her. And I want her to see that so that she can feel like a real human, right? Instead of just a ball of terror and panic, right? And then begin to communicate so that she's not terrified and alone in herself, mm. right? And and that's something that, that sure, it's important to do as a physician, 
you know, going to see a patient who's in acute distress, but it is also something that we can, that all of us can bring to our lives of just being like a real person with other people, right? That's the bridge to helping, whether it's helping the person who's like sitting next to you at work, right? Or it's helping the, you know, the person who looks distressed as, you know, you're standing in the checkout line, right? At the grocery store, or it's someone that maybe a a psychiatrist is trying to help professionally, right? Is is to, to be a real person, right? And that acknowledgement goes such a long way to eliminating shame, right? So if you if you think being a real person and ultimately sharing with her aspects of my own trauma, right? Let's her know like, okay, like I'm not looking at her in some stigmatized way, yeah. right? I'm looking at her as another human being who's going through something profoundly human, right? Which is what she shares with other people that like she is a human being who's gone through really frightening things that are profoundly human. And she wants other people who look up to her to see that that is a shared humanness among all of us. And I think that's the way that I was able to be helpful to her. And it's the way that really all of us can be helpful to other people is by, you know, paying attention and being real, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. I've heard you say that we have a healthcare system that deals with symptoms. Can you talk to us about that? Well, sure. This is certainly true in the United States. And, and I believe I'm much more familiar with yes, the, the system course. in America than I am in Australia. But I, I, I think that they, that all the sort of westernized health systems to some degree or, or another share yes. this. It gets very profound in the United States where, where the, the system really becomes a system of throughput. Right. Which which then again, the analogy that I often use is is like, you know, if there's a problem with the engine of the car, just polish the hood. Right. And we do a lot of that. Certainly in America, we throw medicines at so many things. Right. Because we're just trying to treat symptoms and we're saying, okay, what's going on in you? Which really means just tell me the symptoms so I can try and treat the symptoms. Right. And like that doesn't make people better. Mm. Right. You know, it's certainly not when the root is trauma and the root in many, many cases of like, why is that? Why is that person depressed or why is their depression worse? Why are they having anxiety? Why are they having panic attacks? Why can't they sleep? Right. The answer isn't always trauma, but boy, trauma is a part of the answer most of the time. And if we don't try and get to the root of it. Right. Then how do we expect that we're going to help people? I see, I see this is not an exaggeration. They've had five, six, seven residential treatment stays a month behind closed doors for substance use. And no one has ever taken a trauma history. Really? Are we really going to help that person by saying, Oh, well, you, you, you tend to relapse to alcohol when your mood is lower. Let's put you on an antidepressant, right? Mm-hmm. Or you tend to relapse when you're around these people and not those people. Like it's not that there's not a call for that, right? But unless we look at the underlying, like what's going on inside of you? What are you saying about yourself to yourself? Mm-hmm. How do you feel about your ability to safely be in the world around you, right? Did things change at some point and you began to feel yeah. differently? What were your formative life experiences? Was there child abuse or was there neglect? Are you harboring with you, you know, the the weight of traumas that you haven't talked about? I mean, so, so, so often the answer to those questions is yes, 
right? And if people start to, to talk about it, to process it, well, guess what? People get better, right? And they might benefit from some medicine, but they need less medicine. Yeah. And then we don't have like seven band-aids put on something that needs sutures, right? Like let's go to the root of what's going on and fix it. It's not, a, in fact, it's quite a common sense concept, right? But as, as we know, common sense is not common. And it's certainly not common in a medical system that says, okay, come on, tell me what are your symptoms? So I can like, let me write you some prescriptions. Okay. I'm treating your symptoms out the door next. Yeah. Right. And it's like, how do we expect that's going to help us? And the answers are, it's quite clear. It doesn't help us. Right. Even before the pandemic, mental health issues were getting worse and worse and worse. So many people lost in the United States to the opiate epidemic. Why? Because people are desperate to soothe. Mm. Right. So that the opiate that was started after the knee surgery or, you know, after the sprained ankle, which is not even appropriate reason, but people start opiates and then, oh, what's it soothing? The pain in here. Mm. Right. And then that's very seductive because that only lasts so long. And now the person is dependent. And look how many tens of thousands of people ultimately hundreds of thousands of people we've lost in this nation, right? And, and how suicide rates are rising. This is all before the pandemic. So the system is broken. Treating the symptoms instead of going, instead of going to the root of the problem doesn't work, right? But unless we change it, well, we'll get more of the same, which is more of a by and large ineffective system that has a lot of throughput without a lot of healing. If someone's listening to this and they feel that they have had a traumatic experience or that they're, they're feeling that they have something inside them that they, they want to fix and they need to seek help but they don't want to be put on medication because that can also be a fear. Like I feel like a lot of people might not go seek help because they don't want to be put on medication so they'd rather not. What should someone do? Right. What are the sorts of people that they could talk to? Right. Well, all healthcare systems have you know, therapists yes. in the system, right? And the, the answer to that is so like, look at, okay, what can I access, right? No matter where a person is, right? Like what resources are around me, right? If I have, you know, in this country, if a person has insurance, what can you access through your insurance? If you don't have insurance, what can you access through public health mechanisms, yeah. right? So, so there, there are parallels to that everywhere, right? Then a person has to be an advocate for themselves. Like it shouldn't be that you have to swim against a strong current to get help. But much of the case of the time, that's actually the way that it is. Right. So a person then needs to say, look, I, I need someone who's going to listen. I need to talk about this. Right. And I just can't accept anything less. And, you know, if I have to push for like that, look, that didn't go well. Right. I went and saw someone and they didn't make eye contact and just tried to put me on a medicine. Like that's not okay. I've got to push until I get my needs met. And like, it shouldn't have to be that way, but it's so very often is that way that we have to be advocates for ourselves because otherwise the health system again is just looking at it to shuttle you in one side out the other right with 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 the most with the least expenditure of resources in between yes right and it's a lot cheaper to 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 give medicines to people than it is to do to use humans right? For psychotherapy, for example, right? Or for education about even what's going on inside of you. Like so much just talking to someone about, oh, what's going on inside is reasonable and normal. Think about what your father did for you. I mean, it wasn't really medical, right? Like he's a doctor, so he understood something, but what he did for you was human. Yes. 
right? And 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 look at what a difference. And all of a sudden, your symptoms go down like this. I mean, mm. didn't need a medicine, yeah, right? All it needed was for somebody to say, like, oh, I get what's going on in you. You're not going crazy. This isn't you know, this isn't something that marks you in some stigmatized way. Like it's okay. It's anxiety. Oh my goodness, yeah. right? Then, right. So, so, and again, we can get that sometimes from other resources, from trusted people around us, from clergy people around us. And we can get it without, you know, necessarily professional resources. But if we're going to seek professional resources, we can't settle for anything less mm. than that. And yes, medicines often have their role. And I utilize medicines in my practice, but we have to look at what can medicines get at and what can they not? Yes. I mean, they don't, they don't solve our problems. They don't address our trauma. Right. So sometimes I may use medicines, for example, to treat symptoms. But the idea is, look, we're going to try and treat the symptoms so that we can get at the trauma. Yeah. Right. If you're very badly depressed and you're having panic attacks all the time, how are you supposed to talk about and Mm. process your trauma? So we might say, look, let's use some medicines to get at that. But the idea is that the medicines are hopefully temporary so that we can calm things, get at the trauma. Then you don't need the medicines anymore, or at least you don't need as much medicine. Right. So so it makes things better to acknowledge, have a real human interaction about what's going on, learn something, right? And be able to carry that learning forward and do some self-exploration of like what's going on inside of me. And and here, I, I, I do want to forget to say this, that, and to not be put off if something happened a long time ago, right? The limbic system, which is the emotion system in our brain. If you think loosely, there's logic systems and limbic and emotion systems, right? Well, when the logic systems and the emotion systems come head to head, the emotion system always wins, always wins, right? Because emotion is so powerful Mm. and it doesn't pay attention to the clock or calendar. I can't tell you how many times someone has said to me more than I could ever count. Well, it can't be that whatever that is, because that was 10 years ago or 20 years ago or 50 years ago. No, those emotion systems do not give a damn about the clock and the calendar. And if we don't get at what's going on and put words to it, right, then it stays with us, right, as fresh emotionally as it was when it happened, except now we have all the guilt and shame built on top of it. So to validate if there's something going on that's still in a person's mind. And again, from years ago, I, I hear this all the time of a loss or an assault or, you know, some denigration that stays with the person to don't discount what's going on yeah. inside of you just because it's been going on for a long time. That's so true. And Paul, I wonder, in your job, you have to hear so many stories. And I know you're a trained doctor and you've been doing this for years. But still, the traumatic story after traumatic story of patients that you're dealing with, and I mean, I can only imagine the stuff that you've heard. But I wonder when you go home at night and you're with your family and you go to sleep, how do you not replay that in your mind? You know, I hear a lot of full-on stories doing this podcast. And I remember one in particular, it actually wasn't even on the podcast. The guy was telling me, a beautiful guy was telling me before the podcast about an event that had happened to a family member. And it was was just so awful. And obviously I had no idea he was going to tell me that either. So sometimes when you're doing research, you know a story is going to come. So this was unexpected. I could not stop thinking about it for like a week. And I I was speaking to my family about it and it was just, to me, it was just so horrific. And then obviously with time it faded and, but that's just a story that I heard once off. And I wonder for you how you deal with that. 
Well, first, think about how that's a great example of vicarious trauma. Yeah. Right. The person told you something and being empathically attuned, you take that in. Right. And then, you know, part of your brain isn't so sure, like, oh my gosh, like, is that his story? Is it my story? Like, we lose distance to that. Right. And then, and then you have a vicarious trauma response. Right. And because, you know, over time, you know, your brain can kind of get around it and you sort of heal from that. Right. But think about the vicarious trauma of you the story that you told me and how it affected you. Right. So, so that's, I want to make that point. And then, you know, I, I think people who are in helping professions, like have to have our own help. I mean, you know, I have enough trouble getting my arms metaphorically around my own issues, right. (laughs) Let alone the things that are brought to me. So absolutely. I, I mean, I go to psychotherapy. I don't, you know, I I don't miss my psychotherapy, right. Unless it's something I I really, I I absolutely can't go, but it, it doesn't, you, it's so important to me that that it's it's carried throughout my life, and at times I'm on medicines of various types because you know I'll have like heightened anxiety, and I'm like, look, I need to do something. I need to take care of myself, and yeah. I need to be aware of how things affect me and how they start changing the narratives in my brain. And do I start feeling like? Do I start feeling like identifying strongly with what someone else told me? And then does that start changing? You know, my brain starts going into right. Like I don't feel safe, and like, look, this is natural. It's a natural human response. And we have to take care of ourselves. And, mm-hmm. and I think for people in helping professions, having our own professional help is, is immensely important and trying to, to remain grounded, like knowing and understanding knowledge is so powerful that, yes. that like, yes, it is natural to be affected by the traumatic things we learn, whether other people tell us or we see it on the news or, right. It is natural that it doesn't mean, so I may feel like I'm overwhelmed and nothing is ever going to be okay. And something disastrous is going to happen right now. Right. And I validate, okay, I get that. I feel that way. And I understand why it doesn't mean that that's true. Mm. Right. Or it tells me, oh my God, you can't keep your kids safe. You know, I hear I have children, right. And I hear, you know, stories of, of, I saw a tragedy with someone else's child. Right. And then what does it make me think like, oh my God, I can't keep my own kids safe. Right. That's like, look, that's a natural response. It it doesn't mean it's true. I mean, on the one hand, not, we can't control everything. Right. None of us can suit control as much as we would want. But that doesn't mean that we're out of control. Yeah. Right. If we're behaving reasonably, we're taking reasonably good care of ourselves and of the people around us. Right. Then more often than not, like things are OK. Mm-hmm. Right. Or if something is not OK, we can bring ourselves to bear. We don't have to feel panicked. Right. So so then again, we validate how we feel because occasionally I'll feel that sense of panic about it. But to validate hey, it makes sense that I feel that way. But let me ground to truth. Right. And the truth is, I'm a reasonably competent person who can kind of navigate the world and take care of the people around me. And I'm sort of doing okay. But there again, I'm resisting the reflex of the trauma. Right. That wants to make me feel guilty and ashamed and incompetent and unable to navigate the world. And then I feel terrified and panicked. And I can feel very much like I did when my brother died or any number of subsequent traumas. I mean, I can get back to that place probably in 30 seconds if I let myself. But, you know, I I work hard to not let myself. And, And I think that's how we have good lives, even though. You know, most of us have trauma of some form or another that is with us in big, medium or small ways, but most of us have something and we can lead good lives and really good lives anyway, but boy, not by just shoving it down or ignoring it or doing what the trauma tells us to do, which is feel guilty, ashamed and afraid of it and hide it. I'd love to get your take on this. 
why do we see a lot of people who have maybe had some sort of trauma in their life, so say they were violently assaulted by a family member when they were growing up and then they get into a relationship where they're physically abused and it kind of carries on. Why is that? Why does it seem that those, not always, obviously, but a lot of the time it's attracting the same kind of thing. The person is attracting that same kind of trauma to themselves throughout their life. There can be a number of reasons for that, but there are a couple that are really prominent. So, so one is you think the emotion systems in the brain don't care about the clock and the calendar, right? Like we, we were talking yes. about, right? They, they don't care about the clock and the calendar. So let's say someone is in a relationship and they're, they're physically abused in the relationship, right? And they didn't see that coming. They tried to choose a good partner, but, but then one thing leads to another and this happens, right? That, that often what the emotion systems in the brain want is it, it's so distressing and, and terrifying and it undermines the sense of self. It makes shame. It makes vulnerability that the, that the, that the emotion parts of the brain want to sort of fix that. And, and because those parts of the brain don't care about the calendar. They will often engage in what gets called like repetition compulsion. It's not really that, but those words get applied to it because the person will then do, I'm going to, I'll choose the same kind of partner mm-hmm. and I'll make it right this time. And then, and then if I don't get abused this time and I make it right, it will magically fix in my mind what happened before. Now we don't necessarily say those things to us, but that ourselves, but that's how our emotion systems work. So the person is trying to fix that. So I'll see a person who's like, look, I'm not exactly been in seven abusive relationships in a row, right. With seven people who really fit the same paradigm, right. You know, like very, very similar. And then we'll say, I can never have a relationship. No one will ever treat me well. I get abused in every relationship I'm in. So think about what's being missed there. The person that's saying, Hey, I'm inadvertently choosing abusive people, right? Mm -hmm. Because I'm trying to fix something. And what I need to do is stop choosing a person who's cut from that same mold, right? Same factors, same person, different name, right? But think about how the person interprets it. Oh, it shows that no one will ever love me. I can never keep myself safe, right? And I will say this, I've said this to people more times than I can count. If you can tell me how you had four, five, six, seven different relationships with different people with, with the same result, Maybe I'll agree with you. I mean, I'm half joking what I'm saying because I'm, it's not gonna, that's not going to be the answer, right? Yeah. But what you're going to tell me is that it's really been the same thing multiple times over. And that's very, very reassuring, right? Because we can understand that and we can change that. And then the, the, this traumatic element can go away. Is right. Seek people. Let's look at the profiles. Like, who are the partners? What are the characteristics of the partners? Right? Are they people who might have short fuses? They get angry quickly. Right? They might seem like they have a lot of bravado and can be very protective, but really they have sort of weak egos and they respond, react aggressively. Let's look at all those factors. Choose someone. How can you choose someone different? Right? And then that's what brings us. Oh, the eighth time was the charm. Not really. Because it wasn't really seven different times. It was one thing seven times over Mm. and they changed, right? So it's really the second time when they go find somebody different. You you know what I mean? That makes so much of a difference. And we just see that over and over. The idea of abuse in a relationship is that captures that kind of most strongly. But we see this like with people occupationally, with friendships, where we do the same thing, wanting to have a different 
outcome and we don't realize what we need to learn from the bad outcome is to do something different. Mm. That's so interesting. I've, I've always wanted to know why that is and uh, your answer is is really clear and makes a lot of sense. I wonder out of everything that you've seen and learned over the years, how connected do you think the mind and the body are? Incredibly strongly connected in ways that still, as a trained physician, shock me, right? That the mind and the body are so connected. So for example, the mind can paralyze a limb, Mm. right? And I've seen it where a limb has been paralyzed for years, years, and it's all from the brain, right? So if the brain can do that, right, or the brain can make a person blind, if they see something that is so distressing to them, like this is real, right? So, so how can we argue anything other than like everything that goes on in us goes on here, yeah. right? If it goes on somewhere down here, it just sends signals up and it really goes on here, right? And that is why what is going on in our brains and, and how trauma affects our brains so deeply affects our physical health, mm. right? It affects, are we able to take care of ourselves? If we're exercising and eating healthily, can we be in good physical shape, right? Or does a person say, continue to gain weight and feel lethargic anyway, right? The weight of trauma and how it can change us ourselves endocrinologically absolutely can do that, right? Just like it can push to heart attacks and strokes and autoimmune diseases and you name it, anything under the sun, infertility, right? Like anything we could talk about can be created by the impact of the brain on the body. And we absolutely know that. Again, I'm not saying anything that we don't know, but we tend to very, very much minimize. And as someone who often works in the intersection of mental health and the rest of medicine, I see this over and over and over again. We just do not look enough at it. We don't. And that just dumbfounds me because of all the work that I've done on myself over the last last few years. And it's all come from the way that my mind works and the way that I started to change my thought patterns and having a lot of mentors and teachers and all that kind of stuff and books and immersing myself in all this wisdom. I mean, I saw it within myself and thought, this is unbelievable. Hence why I wanted to start the podcast to have people like yourself on, to show people that your mind can take you to a really bad place, but it can do the opposite as well. It can give you the most freedom and the most happiness and joy that you've ever experienced. You just need to know how to use it properly. And with everything that you're saying today, trauma is such a horrible thing, but you can come back from it. It's not like I was sexually abused as a child and now I'm tainted forever, or I was in this car accident or I had a sibling that lost their life to suicide and I just, I will never be myself again. The ability to bounce back and to rewire the brain is there. There's been so many studies about it. I've yes. seen it in so many people. I mean, you, your work is, is key to all of that. Yes, thank you. Thank you so much. And you're bringing out what I think is a, is a really a primary point of the book and yeah. of, I think of, of any discussion around trauma, which, which is that, that, you know, when things are very, very complicated, Right, that's never consistent with good mental health. Yes. Right. When things are simplified, that's 
what's consistent with good mental health. So the basic values that we learn when we're kids, right? The basic teachings of major religions, the basic teachings of kindergarten, of how to treat one another, how to understand other people and ourselves, right? There's a simplicity to like, look, what's going on inside of me? And if something happens and we feel different about ourselves after the fact, it starts to create layers and layers of complexity. Now I've got a new self-image, right? Which is not a good one. And now I start behaving differently. And now people start reacting to me differently. Now the profile of like, whether it's friends, family, relationships, right, starts to change, right? There's just think about all the layers of complexity there. And, and what good, healthy treatment of trauma does is it just brings us back to simple truths, which is like, well, okay, a trauma has happened, right? Which is, which again, not always the case, but very often, like the roots are in a trauma and we can look at that and say, right, what you're experiencing afterwards, like makes sense. Like that is how the brain reacts, that reflex of shame and hiding and, and like, oh, that is an impact on the body too, right? And now you're having maybe pain somewhere you weren't before or low levels of energy or you can't sleep well. It's like, wait, it all makes sense. Like, let's go look at it. We don't have to be afraid of it, right? We can look at it through a lens that go that looks to validate what's going on in the person, right? And looks to, to, to put some understanding around what happens inside of us and looks to anchor ourselves to what we know is true about ourselves, right? So if I, if I think now I'm unsafe, I can't navigate the world and the world is out to get me. I mean, look, nobody comes out of the womb thinking that, Yeah. right? Right. So, so it was like, well, how did I start thinking that? Right. And sometimes there's a clear event or sometimes it might be, you know, look, I went away to school and everyone bullied me and treated me lousy for four years. Okay, that's trauma. Right. So now on the other side of it, the person has like so much aggression and fear, whatever it may be. It could be any of that. Right. Inside of them. But but let's anchor to the, the simple truths like you didn't always feel that way. Why? Because. It's not actually true, right? It's the trauma that told you it was true, yeah. right? And told you you were incompetent and that you couldn't navigate and couldn't make a good life for yourself and that you need alcohol to fall asleep every night and no one will ever love you or whatever it is, right? Like those are the lies of trauma. And we anchor to what are the simple truths that, that we knew before trauma. Mm. Paul, I wonder, you talked at the start about when your brother committed suicide and then you kind of you went into psychiatry because it gave you meaning and purpose to be able to help others. And I think a lot of what I've seen in life is when people have real meaning and purpose through what they do in their lives, be their jobs or just the way they conduct themselves in the world, it just gives them a whole lot of joy. And I wonder yes. what you believe to be true about that. Okay. Again, that that is also it's a hallmark of um, humans, yeah. right? That we recognize our own capacity for goodness, right? If we're able to give some goodness to to, to another person, right? Mm. So if I feel terrible about myself and that I'm I'm worth nothing and no one will ever care about me, right? And you look sad and I can smile at you. Right. Or you drop something and I can pick it up for you. And then I see the sadness go to your own smile. Right. It tells me, hey, there's power in me to do good. I'm not devoid of goodness. Mm. Right. And it reminds us of that, which is why a person doesn't have to do things 
that one may think, oh, like become a therapist or become a doctor or like start a podcast to talk about important things. Like that is great, but not those things aren't necessary. It's like, how do we comport ourselves in the world around us? Right. Do we, do we go through just the basics of our day with a sense of, of, you know, a, a benign disposition towards others and, you know, like meet that guy said, meet that person in the checkout line who's frowning with a smile instead of a, a frown, right? Do something nice for somebody. Like it, it's so easy to do these things, but often we don't. Don't do them. We see them as, oh, what's that going to, difference is that going to make? And the answer is an immense amount of difference, right? Because then we see, hey, there must be goodness in me if I can see that there's, that, that I can do something good for someone else. Right. And it makes such a big difference. And we don't focus on that nearly enough, especially with all the societal strife, which certainly the United States. I mean, there's so much fighting right around politics and social agenda. And then it, they're not dialogues anymore. They're character assassinations. Right. Yeah. Well, if you don't agree with me, you know, you must be a terrible person, which isn't about a dialogue. Right. It's about so much frustration that people are looking for outlets for their frustration through aggression. Mm. Right. And it's like, like, how about we not behave that way? Right. How about you can disagree with me and I can be respectful to you anyway. Yeah. Right. I mean, like these are ways to navigate in the world because when people are just angry and I'm just so frustrated, I just want to be right. I don't care if I'm right or not. Right. I don't actually care if I'm right. I just want to be right because I want to be angry and I want to shut you down. Right. I mean, that doesn't help any of us. That person leaves even if they got the victory. Right. They won the argument or they won whatever it was. People go home more isolated feeling more vulnerable, more angry, right? And we, we need to push against the social mechanisms, which are social mechanisms that generate conflict mm-hmm. and, and leave everybody feeling more isolated. Certainly that is rampant in the United States. And I know it's not just here, but that, you know, that takes away any feeling of goodness, right? Yes. As opposed to, oh, we disagreed. And you know what? We can be civil to one another anyway. Like, doesn't that give us a feeling of wholeness yeah. inside? And maybe we learned something along the way. Right. But it's these really basic facts that come back to like what, what we learned in kindergarten. Right. Are we deploying what we learned in kindergarten in life? I mean, not if you turn on the news in this country, a lot of the times. Right. You know, you see political figures and people in positions of power, you know, behaving in a way that would get you thrown out of fifth grade. Yes. Right. Right. So so what does that tell all of us that, hey, we're all beleaguered and everybody becomes more fearful and everybody retrenches to their own position. We have more conflict and less ability to listen to others. And then, you know, we propagate trauma that way. And we certainly don't give people, you know, a healthy outlet for communication. Right. Because we're, we're, it's all vulnerability and fear and isolation. And you know, as, as a society, as societies locally, you know, all the way up to nationally and internationally, right? We, we need to really behave differently than some of what our, our increased interconnectedness over the last bunch of years has led to. So in some ways, look, it's great. Like you, you and I are doing a podcast together from two different countries, right? That's really wonderful, right? But a lot of the interconnectedness has given people routes for for trying to deal with their own sense of um, of anxiety or their own sense of inadequacy, right. By, by assailing other people. Mm. Right. I mean, there's a lot of that too. people allying around, you know, whether it's race, religion, ethnicity to say like, Hey, I want to, I want to lie with people who look like me yes. so that we can say we're better than other people. Right. I mean, there's so much of that going on, right. Which is how our interconnectedness, like anything else powerful can work for us or against us. And it's us who choose that. 
right? We're going to choose. Does the internet spread misinformation and lies and hatred and aggression, right? Or are we handling it in a different way? Some maybe through rules and regulations and also through how we choose to comport ourselves, where we handle it to try and make more, more real communication and accord. I mean, really, ultimately, it's our, no one else is choosing for us, right? Exactly. That's so true. Paul, I wonder, in your line of work, you've obviously get people who are the abuser and they come to you to seek help. How do you deal with people like that? How do you see them as equal, as taking your bias aside? The first um, branch point, right, is is trying to understand, is that person, they said, truly sociopathic, right? Where that Where there are some people who really have no sense of empathy or consideration for others and feels like, well, that's what I feel like and what I want and what else matters besides what I feel like or what I want. That is rare that a person built like that comes in for clinical help, yeah. right? More often what we see are people who react to their own insecurities and vulnerabilities by trying to be powerful and, and in their attempts to be powerful, harming others, Right. So certainly by no means does it mean if a person is abused when they're a child, they're going to abuse other children. Right. But sometimes that happens. Right. And you say, well, why would that happen? Right. So it goes back to trying to fix something. Right. So the person then tries to identifies with the aggressor. Right. The person who hurt them when they were a child and felt so hurt and terrified and vulnerable. And they're still carrying that with them. So they try and gain back some of that by being powerful. Right. In, in, in ways that harm someone else. Right. And, and people who are doing that at, at times are looking because, because, it's not working for them, right? It's hurting someone else and it's not making them feel any better, right? So then you look at, okay, why is the person doing that? What do they need to express? Oftentimes they need to express what their own terror was, right? They need to, in a sense, have a way to be empathic and compassionate with themselves, right? So they can deal with the guilt and shame, right? So how many times have I seen a person who is abusing someone else, who when they talk about it, what they immediately start talking about is how guilty and ashamed they feel that they were abused. But that's not allegedly what we're talking about, right? Yeah. Why they're abusing someone else, but they're talking about their own abuse, right? So, so we then need to go to a place of what's going on inside that person who feels disempowered and frightened and how are they trying to, in a sense, get that power back, right? In a way that harms others. And there are ways you can ally with with the, the, you know, the better instincts in people that, that like don't want to be hurting others, want to understand the what and why of it and don't want to do that. And then we can help them by coming at trauma just in the same way we can help a person who's drinking because of their trauma, yeah. understand the, the trauma so that they don't feel compelled to drink. So we can do that in the same way so the person doesn't feel compelled to harm other people. That's so interesting. Paul, what is the best advice that you have ever been given? Okay, what comes to, 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 me, to my mind at the, the moment is basically advice to stop and think, right? Because, you know, we act in very reflexive manners as human beings, right? And no one wants to think that someone can do a certain thing, trick us in a certain way, and then we go and do a bunch of complex behaviors, 
right? That are not good for us. Like, I don't want to think that I'm like that, right? I, I want to fight anything inside of me that has me doing things like a domino gets tipped over. Now the rest of the dominoes get tipped over, right? So the idea of stop and think and reflect is immensely helpful to us, right? So imagine someone who's been assaulted and then finds themselves in a situation where it's dark out, they see someone else you know, relatively close. And then they, they, they go through all the cascade of thoughts and feelings, you know, and they want to scream or run away or feel like, oh my God, what did I do to myself? Stop. I think what's going on inside of me, right? Because what that lets us do is validate. It's okay. I get how I feel. If I've been assaulted, now I find myself in a situation. I get that I feel this way, right? But it doesn't mean that it may not be true that I'm unsafe or that, you know, I'm a, it's about to happen again. Cause people will feel that when it's really not going to happen again, there's other people around too. something triggers the person. Right. Yeah. And then a cascade of events can happen in us where we feel exactly like we did when the traumatic thing happened. I mean, I give an example in the book of walking to a railway station in London that has a name that sounds similar to the word pancreas, right? And my, my mother died of pancreatic cancer. Then I'm walking to to the railway station and I was going to see a friend I really wanted to see. But instead I'm thinking, oh, uh, you know, I'm an I'm a incompetent person and I feel lousy about myself. And, and I realized like, I think this because the name of this railway station is triggering me to think about the word pancreas, which yeah. is how my mother died. And then I feel guilty that I didn't go home more and I wasn't more supportive. I'm like, oh my gosh, my entire mental state as I go to like this awesome thing, I'm seeing a friend who's come down to visit me. This is great. And I feel terrible, right? Because I'm lost in what's going on inside of me that's not about the present. It's about the past. And when I ground myself like, yeah, you feel that way because of the tragedy and the trauma around what my mother's death. Right. And I can look at that and say, look, I get why I feel that way. But but that is not the truth of what's going on now. What's going on now is I'm working, walking somewhere to do something I can't wait to do. Mm. Right. And then I can separate that. But you've we've got to stop and think, which is why I'm saying stop and think about what's the narrative going on inside of us. What are we saying to ourselves? Right. Am I am I different after something that happened to me? Is that other person in my life different after something that happened? Or maybe I don't know that anything happened, but they seem different. Can I go ask? them. You know, can we stop and take stock of what's going on in ourselves and others, as opposed to the domino effect where it's going over and over and forward and forward. And then maybe we're miserable and on the seventh abusive relationship when we didn't realize like, Hey, there didn't have to be a number two, or maybe not even, maybe there have to be a number one, but there certainly have to be a number two. Let me stop and take stock of things and own what's mine, including my own capabilities, my ability to plot out my own course and simplify things so that we can live in the present as our best and most empowered selves. And that's not some pie in the sky, you know, platitude, like that's how it actually can be. And sometimes clinical help can get us there, but understanding and validation, the kind of things I write about in the book, which I mean to be accessible to any, everyone who can read that book and, and feel some sense of understanding and grounding so that we decide our paths in life. We, it's not that trauma is in the driver's seat. We use this a lot. The trauma gets in the driver's seat of our lives. And I don't want to be in the backseat of my life. 
right? And you don't either, and nobody does. So let's look at, at when do I feel like I'm in the backseat of my life or do I feel like that, but I'm not admitting it to myself? Let me go look at that because if I start really looking at that, things will not get worse. Things will get better. Yeah. The, the, oh, you must hide it. You can't acknowledge it. Everything will get worse. That's a lie of trauma, right? And if we don't do that, but we look at it and we think about it and we maybe write about it, we talk about it, then everything starts to get better and people predictably heal. What's your greatest hope for society today? I hope that we realize that a lot of the decisions we have made have really furthered the tribulations of the last several years, right? And that we do not have to behave in a way that's really kind of the lowest common denominator, of I, I just want my way and I, I feel bad, I feel angry, I just want what's mine. And then it's so easy to go to the things that are simple, to go to denigrating other people, feeling better than other people. And again, so much of this happens, you know, and, and you know, how we see, see sort of things as binary, right? Where gender identity and sexuality are supposed to be binary, right? Which is like makes no sense whatsoever. But then it allows like such criticism of anyone who's not fitting into that, that artificial binary nature. Like I'm just citing things that are like pools to where like we can go to feel better about ourselves in shallow ways. Again, whether it's racism or it's sexism or, or whatever, any number of, of places human beings can go to falsely feel better about themselves. And I hope that what we learn is like, that doesn't do any of us any good, mm. right? What does us good is to look at what's really going on in ourselves and others and try and ground to some basic principles of how do we interact with one another? How do we interact with ourselves? What are we saying to ourselves inside our minds? Because often many of us are saying way worse things inside here than anyone could ever say to us, right? Yeah. How am I reacting to that? How am I taking care of myself? What are the givens in my life that may not actually be true? I can never have a good career. No one will ever love me. Like, why do I think that, right? Can that really be true? Again, as I say, no one comes out of the womb thinking about that. So can we can we stop and can we realize that this way that we're handling things of, of sort of frantic tripping over ourselves, like the throughput of the medical system, if we slow down a little bit and spend more time in reflection and helping, maybe things can get better, right? Yeah. And I think we really need that across the board because otherwise- we're just tripping forward. You know, it's like being in a dangerous place. Instead of stopping and looking around and making things safer, we just trip forward, right? Yeah. Which is like, that's a recipe for things getting worse and not better. And it doesn't have to be that way. And I write about antidotes and things we can anchor to in the book. And, and I think a lot of it, some of it is common sense. Some of it is not quite common sense, but not that hard to understand and anchor to. So it's not, it's not complex in a sense, how to ground ourselves and start making life better. Paul, I wonder, do you have a favorite saying or prayer? We don't come out of the womb thinking that we're less than. We don't come out of the womb thinking we have to be afraid every moment and we can't navigate life. So what I mean is we're not built to be that way, right? So if there are things going on inside of us, whether it's, oh, I can't get to sleep at night. I can't stop the thoughts that are in my head. I'm, you know, I'm really afraid of other people and I stay at home or whatever it may be. Like that we can look at that. We don't have to be afraid of it. So this idea that we don't come out of the womb traumatized, right? So if there are things going on in our lives, right, that, that, that may have come through the lens of trauma, can we say, hey, 
this is not how I was built to be or meant to be. Can we anchor to that? And then that maybe gives us the courage to look inside, right? And to start assessing what's going on inside of us instead of the guilt and the shame and the hiding, um, you know, really winning the day. So I would say maybe that like we don't come out of the womb traumatized, right? And by sharing with others, which really brings me back to your story about the high levels of anxiety and just like checking in with your dad about it. And then you feel better because then what happened was like isolation went away. Just as you read the four that Stephanie wrote for my book, why did she start feeling better? Isolation went away, right? And we're not, we're not built to be isolated either. And we can be isolated with lots and lots of people around us. It has to be our choice to share, right? To be honest and real in safe settings that lead us not to be isolated. And then we can heal. What is a life of greatness to you? I think a life of greatness is a life of authenticity where we don't have to hide from what's gone on in us, right? And I've really learned how much stigma and shame and hiding harms us. Right. And how healthy and good it is. So so people will say sometimes like, wow, like you wrote a book and you, you know, you wrote about like real trauma in your life. And it's like it, people say, oh, this seems like that's brave. Right. Or something. But like, like, it's been so good for me. Right. Be- because it's it's humanness. Like I'm not pretending that, you know, that this hasn't gone on in me. And then I feel more like I'm a real person. Right. And and I've got my, you know, my strivings and achievements and I've got my insecurities and fears. And and like then I feel like I'm living authentically and I'm a lot more likely to be my best self mm-hmm. for myself, you know, for the people I love, for my wife and children and the people I'm taking care of and friends and family. Right? I'm much more likely to be at my best if I'm being real and authentic. And there was, and I see that very strongly because there was such a push in me to, to hide away when, you know, that first huge trauma happened. And I had subsequent traumas to that, each of which said, go hide away right? You are not safe. You cannot share this. And I realized if I had gone and hidden away at any point in time, like I would not have been okay. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what that means. Would I have you know, not survived? Maybe, right? Would I have survived, but been depressed and miserable? Maybe. But, but I don't think things would not have been okay if I were in a sense choosing to live inauthentically because of the false lessons of trauma, right? That tell me nothing's ever going to be okay and no one's ever going to help me. And I better just go hide with all that guilt and shame and fear. Right? We have to run countercurrent to that and live authentically, which means living in the truths of our lives, good, bad, and otherwise. Yeah. That's how we heal and that's how we're healthy and that's how we're interconnected. Paul Conti, you are a really beautiful person. Thank you so much for sharing all your wisdom and being vulnerable and writing your wonderful book. I know that it's helped so many people and I encourage everyone to read it. So thank you so much for the conversation today. You're very, very welcome. Thank you for having me on and for being so thoughtful about this discussion. Again, I just so appreciate it. Thank you. If you've enjoyed this episode, then I'd love you to join my community on Instagram at Sarah Grimberg, where we post videos and behind-the-scenes footage of each recording. You can also join my private Facebook group, Live Life Greatly, where we discuss the content in this episode and many more, as well as give advice and tips on how to live a life of love and meaning. To purchase my ebook, Finding Greatness, head to sarahgrimberg.com. And if you love what you heard, then we'd love you to hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app and leave a five-star review. It will help us share this wisdom with others. 
A Life of Greatness's executive producer is me, Sarah Grimberg. Audio producers, Matt Curry and Nicola Sitch. Special thanks to Grant Tothill for bringing this dream to life. For more episodes, search A Life of Greatness podcast, download the new listener app now and listen for free.